Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann speak with Adam Orens and Sal Barnes from MPG Consulting, formerly the Marijuana Policy Group, an internationally recognized cannabis and hemp corporate strategy and policy advisory firm. MPG has completed strategic projects in 27 states and seven countries for some of the industry's leading MSOs, regulators, ancillary businesses, and investment firms. MPG enables clients to make informed decisions through strategic advisement, research, and analysis. The group has helped shape the policy decisions of some of the biggest states around the regulation of medical and adult use cannabis programs and helped major MSOs get their start. They write the rules, they work with the C-level in the industry, and they're cool guys to boot. Given what's happening in the world right now, this is a must listen. Now on to our conversation with Ann, Lewis, Adam, and Sal. Sal, Adam, thank you guys so much uh, for joining us. Uh, When we last spoke, which face-to-face was in December of 2019 at the MJ Biz Conference, the world was completely different. Um, before we jump into what we're going to talk about today, how are you guys holding up? Uh, you know, things are uh, things are quiet all around Denver uh, since the stay-at-home orders uh, came along a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, you know, you can just really tell it when you walk around the city. Um, you know, everywhere is pretty much empty. Uh, they've started to close down some of the city streets for pedestrians to use, which I thought was very good. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're holed up, but doing well. Scared to go to, uh, yeah, I I was just going to say, I'm scared to go to the supermarket and try my best not to. I was, I was actually thinking dispensary, but, but I guess groceries work too. I have, I'm also afraid to go inside the dispensary at the moment, but, uh, a lot of these, uh, businesses are, uh, I know the dispensaries and, uh, liquor stores and a lot of other retail stores that are the ones that are allowed to stay open. Um, they've implemented like, uh, uh outside the store operations, um, where you can make transactions um, kind of right outside the store, standing in the parking lot. Adam, when we last had you on the pod, um, it was back in September of 2018, which just seems like eons ago. Um, but as a refresher for our audience, can you tell me about what MPG Consulting does and how it's different from the Marijuana Policy Group, which is, um, you know, who we interviewed last time? <laughs> Yeah, so um, when I founded the firm in 2014, uh, we called ourselves the Marijuana Policy Group. And our initial work that we did was focused on some of those policy issues, those key ones in Colorado that um, evolved the market into what it is today. Um, but uh, And that's how most people came to know us. But um, what people haven't really heard is you know, since since founding as well, we have uh, quietly um, 
uh, done a, a number of different pieces of work, and uh, uh, we are a strategic advisory firm that has advised, uh, you know, large companies inside and outside the cannabis industry, uh, large government agencies, um, entrepreneurs looking to enter the market, some of which have grown their companies to become some of the largest MSOs now. Um, we've had a wide range of clients and uh, we decided last year uh, that we needed to change our name to reflect uh, the work that we've done over the years. Um, and so um, MPG Consulting uh, is what we go by now. And we've done a, uh, we continue to expand that breadth of work uh, into hemp uh, as well, hemp business and hemp regulatory work. Um, and so we think that um, we needed to evolve uh, the name uh, of our firm, just like our work has evolved over the years. Yeah, I've heard you describe yourselves as like the, the Boston consulting or the, the bane of the, the cannabis world. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, apt uh, comparison. Um, you know, I think we've been driving uh, strategic thinking in cannabis markets across the U.S. and also uh, internationally uh, since 2014. Um, and I think it shows in the breadth of client work we've done uh, and the uh, breadth of accolades we've received. Well, I'm giving you plenty of accolades because you guys are are clearly among the smartest guys. Well, you know, in all in all, you know, comedy aside, you guys really are, you know, among the smartest guys when it comes to thinking about cannabis. You know, and you know, what's happened in you know in the light of this this COVID outbreak is that cannabis has been deemed an essential service in pretty much every state that has a medical program and almost most of the adult use states as well. Um, and the sales you know we've seen from from BDS and headset and and all the other data providers showed this massive spike um, as soon as everybody got the stay at home orders and then it was dipped down and it seems to have normalized back into what what a normal sales cycle would be for them. And in the states that, that cannabis is sold in, it's some of the you know it's among the few stores that are open and it's among the few stores, or, or industries that are providing tax revenue to municipalities and states. You guys wrote a white paper recently on how states can leverage this tax revenue. Can you, you know, Adam, take a moment and explain this at just at a high level? Sure. This is Adam. Um, so uh, we've been thinking, uh, you know, seeing what happened here uh, in Colorado, um, hearing what had happened in other states um, when some of these, uh, stay-at-home uh, stay-at-home orders uh, came about, uh, and just saw how um, you know, same as alcohol, and then uh, same as toilet paper, uh, there was uh, runs, and people went out to stock up on these products, um, and that really kind of opened my eyes. Um, and Sal and I were talking about it. Um, we also were talking about how you know. Um, uh, governments in general are going to be feeling the effects of COVID-19 uh, slightly after uh, everybody else does when it hits them in the tax rolls. And, 
you know, we've seen years of steady revenue uh, out of Colorado, out of Washington, uh, out of Nevada now. Um, and, uh, you know, we we thought it was time to to broach this subject that this uh, could be a bondable revenue stream, a revenue uh, stream that uh, cities can and states can uh, use to uh, leverage to uh, build infrastructure and also to fund social programs and maybe even fund some relief efforts um, through some of this, uh, um, some of these mechanisms that are used uh, by by cities for you know when they build highways or when they build parks, uh, this could go to fund all of that. Sal, you guys use Denver and Minneapolis as examples of how these cannabis municipal bonds would work. Can you walk us through some of those numbers and really why this idea um, of, of CMBs uh, is particularly relevant during a time like this? And do it slowly. I was told there would be no math. <laughs> okay, so what we did was we took two markets, Denver and Minneapolis, and we examined what the potential uh, bondable capacity would be based off of differing timeframes for bonds, one being a short-term three-year bond and one being a 10-year long-term bond. For the city of Denver, it was pretty easy for us just to calculate future demand because we have historical sales numbers and we were able to use product mix pricing um, you know, the general demand curves and come up with an estimated long-term 10-year tax revenue of $644 million. And that $644 million, you know, after you take on various calculations that go into calculating how much capacity a bond could be, is $591 million in bonding capacity, which equates to about $438 million to use for the initiatives that Denver applies its cannabis tax revenue to, which is education. So from a 10-year bond, Denver should be able to raise approximately $438 million for educational initiatives in the city, which will be much more impactful on a shorter timeline and spaced out over 10 years. In Minneapolis, we did the same thing, except we applied it to their big social initiative, which is affordable housing. So in Minneapolis, we estimated demand based on several factors, demographics, you know, associated price. And we came up with a proposed tax assumption, which is essentially 26.5% total tax. And from that, we were able to estimate the 10 year long-term 343 total, $343 million in total estimated cannabis tax revenue for the city of Minneapolis. From that, a 10-year bond would have a 314.5 million bond capacity and about a $233 million, we're going to say not immediate, but very, uh, very much more impactful, affordable money for affordable housing. So if you think about what's important right now in the city of Minneapolis, especially given what's happening in the market as a result of COVID, affordable housing is a very uh, pertinent issue. By creating a cannabis-based municipal bond in the city of Minneapolis, based off our projections, the city should be able to bond approximately $233 million to help with that affordable housing initiative. Have you guys been in touch with the cities and have you had direct conversations about this? And is that even something you can answer? 
So we have in Minneapolis, we did an analysis uh, there and were contacted by some state officials last year. Uh, they were interested in, in learning more about how we could do better calculations and how the market would play off. And I think those discussions are still in progress. Um, but that is sort of the only one. This paper just got released last week, and we are actively reaching out to our government contacts to see the interest in the market right now. How does the difference its time? Oh, no, it's the right time. There's never been a better time for this than right now. I, I mean, it? I agree with you, but I think it's, uh, you know, we, we view it as a, a topic that is uh, avant-garde for um, <laughs> governments to talk about um, and investment banks for that matter. But I think uh, I think the time and may, maybe these current, you know, tragic times could uh, catalyze that discussion. How does how does your paper and your guys looking at this take into account the differences between, say, um, adult use versus medical states or it, it doesn't matter? It's it's all it's all seen as one thing. So for this paper and this analysis, we base our calculations solely off of adult use markets because of the tax. Right. It's taxed at a much higher rate. Um, right. Some places don't even have tax on medical. So this is solely based off adult use markets. OK. Um, so what do we need to do to actually make this a reality? Who do we who do I got to call? Well, I would say this is Sal. I would say the, the people there's there's two sides of this coin that need to make this a reality. Um, the first is legislators, governors, you know, head regulatory agencies in sizable potential cannabis markets. So, you know, New York would have been a great one. We all know what's going to happen in 2020 with the uh, cannabis regulations in New York as a result of COVID, but New York would have been a great place to start. So once you have those regulators on board, it's also working with the appropriate investment banks who underwrite this stuff and then ultimately sell it into the market. Those are the two major players that need to get on board to do this. And then our piece would be helping both the banks and the, um, and the municipalities effectively understand their appropriate demand based on several factors, sort of the MPG secret sauce, and then come up with a bond capacity from that. So states like Colorado, though, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, California, they're ideal for this because they have both – you know, a, a well-established adult use market as well as a, a medical market. Um, and, you know, you look at California, I mean, it's, it's huge. Um, I mean, are these the states that you guys are looking at? I know, you know, we didn't get it done in New York and maybe we'll get it done in New Jersey in November, but you know, those, those five States alone are massive. Yeah, I'd say this is Adam. I would say that uh, the more mature markets uh, would be the leading ones. I think it's going to take uh, willing banks to market this. Uh, but you know, this is a new revenue source to uh, to every state, right? This is a product that was illegal, uh, but now it's been made legal and. Um, you know, uh, communities should be able to reap the benefits of it as well. And these bonds would speed up the investment in this infrastructure in these programs. 
And, you know, we found a few examples of states already doing this with their gaming revenues um, from casinos. Uh, I think Iowa was one of them. Mississippi was another. Sal, was there another too? Um, Iowa, Mississippi, and let me see, I can't just the name off the top of my head. Um, I bet right, put you on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, New Jersey, that's right, in Atlantic City. No, Lewis, that's absolutely right. In Atlantic City, they would. Uh, and, you know, there's a history of, of uh, using that. I mean, Atlantic City's a perfect one. They uh, are trying to rebuild the whole city off of those yeah. kinds of revenues. Are you guys doing modeling in any other cities, or, or have, they, have they asked you for them? Specific cities, bonds? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, not. I guess it's only been a week, so maybe maybe we'll ask you in like six months. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's only been a week, and also I have a strong feeling that city government municipality leaders are They're dealing busy. with more important things right now. Yeah, you know. Uh, let's pivot to the hemp market. Um, it, admittedly, it's a confusing market. It's, it's you know, tough for a lot of people um, to, to understand. And there, there seems to be this massive glut um, of, of hemp flooding the market. What should the market look like? And, and who is getting it right? And who is getting it wrong? Uh, we love for you to name names, but you certainly don't have to. Oh, come on, gossip. <laughs> Spill the tea, Jen. So this is... This is Sal. Um, I'll answer the question uh, in two ways. The first is going to be what we're going to say uh, consumer products, consumable um, extracts of hemp, and the other one's going to be the industrial use side. So from an, an, an consumable product standpoint, you know, we're seeing that um, there's an increasingly apparent industry trend uh, moving towards the route of nutraceutical and pharmaceutical models, right? And I think that brands distinguishing themselves must demonstrate familiar, familiarity with established standards um, for similarly orienting themselves to those to those other industries, and then clearly communicate that the products they make meet and exceed um, upcoming standards. One of the things that I think is sort of like the big um, secret or sort of known unknown in the industry is the concept of stability of any sort of extract, especially when it comes to using that in a soda, in a water, in a drink, and all these you know other sort of products like that. Uh, CBD and hemp extracted uh, molecules, unless they are at the nanomolecular level, are very unstable and they oxidize in liquid products. What that means effectively is if you have a hemp soda and the way you put CBD in a hemp soda wasn't at the nanomolecular level, the chemistry of that will change very rapidly. So you're going to have a very, very short shelf life. So as these regulations develop from the FDA upon what looks good and what you can and can't do from a hemp extract and consumable space, those products will change. And the companies that do not have those sort of practices will fall to the wayside very quickly. Um, in terms of the industrial market, I think what looks good and what doesn't look good are states who are imploring farmers who are just coming online, like Texas, for example, is doing a good job of this. They are encouraging farmers to try to find buyers and to try to create mechanisms for the industrial supply chain. 
they're trying to push an imperative that Texas will be an industrial hemp grown state, realizing that Colorado, California, Oregon, Kentucky kind of have a lockdown on the consumable space, the consumer product space, right? And creating a hemp farm in one of the new states coming online with the sole sole purpose of growing hemp to then extract it into CBD, CBG, CBN, what have you, is basically a race to the bottom. So we need to start seeing states, investors, entrepreneurs, what have you, really start putting their their mouth their money where their mouth is r&d and any else anything else they can do to build out the industrial supply chain because that will be a far far bigger market than anything on the consumer product side is that is are you looking at this at hemp and and this is for either of you guys as akin to cotton or tobacco or you know soybeans and wheat where it's it is just a commodity that it's going to eventually be traded on the you know the the commodities exchange there'll be futures you know all the the derivative products is is that how you view this um and and how long do you think if so it'll take for us to get there so i think that this is south so i think that there is you got to think of it in two ways right the one is for that consumer product side it's my opinion that eventually that process and extraction process and the result of that extraction process will be um, industrialized to the point where it will just be a couple of big manufacturers who create the most um, the most perfect molecule. And then they're sold throughout to all the big CBG companies. So think of caffeine, think of refined sugar. That's what I think the future of the consumer side is on the industrial side. You know, because there's so many different applications for it, like way more than cotton, right? We have the we have the potential to really grow the hemp market from the industrial standpoint. However, the market on the industrial side and the trading of that hemp does need to grow up. And I think it does need to have an exchange. It does need to have the same regulations. And it does need to be more commoditized. Without that sort of structure, we're still going to have the same chaos that's in the market right now, which is really hampering its growth. You know, Sal, from- I, I think uh, what's, what, what I have really observed as this goes is, you know, everybody's chasing these ingredients that uh, have the highest profit margin. It was CBD first, now it's CBG. Uh, and, you know, nobody is kind of building out. Uh, and it's got to it's got to come in the in the demand side too of the industrial supply chain, like you're saying, right? Like there's not yet a big national home builder that's using hemp uh, and marketing hemp materials yet. There's no big plastics manufacturer that's using it for plastic containers of any kind or industrial plastics, and. Uh, you know, I, it's it's interesting to observe to me just sort of the degree that everybody's chasing these ingredients. I, I've asked a number of people who are talking about, you know, CBG is great. We, you know, we're selling all that CBG, and I asked them what it what it did. Why would someone take CBG? And, and they couldn't tell me. This was at the Indo Expo in Denver. Um, a couple months ago, but uh, it was just interesting to me. So maybe Lewis or Ann, you can tell me why people are taking CBG because um, I, I couldn't even find out at a, hemp, at a hemp convention. I couldn't find out. 
you know, the, the problem with all, all of these ingredients, you know, from, from a medical perspective is there's no research. There's no clinical trials. We're just being told that, ooh, you want this amount of CBD, this amount of CBN, this amount of CBG, this amount of THCA. And I'm calling bullshit because nobody actually knows, you know, you know that you take something before you go to sleep and it helps you either go to sleep or stay asleep, but nobody knows. No, it's the same way that you don't know if what, what, what vitamin C really does or vitamin D does. Like there hasn't been the clinical trials. Yeah, I am. This is, I completely agree. And I think, you know, companies and especially startup companies that are looking for investment that are just chasing demand for extracts are going to have a very tough time. You know, at the end of 2019, I think Adam and I probably received two to three pitch decks a week for extraction facilities or for new CBD uh, product lines, you know, and they're all the same thing and none of them got funded, right? It's just a very difficult crowded market. That's hard to differentiate yourself in. And one of the things we always see that people claims that for differentiating factor is that, they have the best hemp, right? Which is also, it's not, that's, what does that mean in this instance, right? So it is very difficult to compete in that market. And it's even more difficult to enter that market and succeed. And you guys are working with private equity funds, hedge funds, and the like to, to help analyze these same pitch decks you're getting. How are you helping those clients of yours you know, look at the hemp market. Are you telling them wait or now is the time to get in? Like, what are you talking to them about? So to sell, there's, there's two things that we basically do uh, for those guys. One is using, you know, some of our core skills on the policy and regulatory side and providing sort of regulatory de-risking or hedging strategies, right? So if your investment's going to be in this What's the market going to look like in five years from a regulatory standpoint? And will that company still be solvent to do that? So, for example, if you are a company that makes a CBD soda, but knowing coming down the line that there's going to be some restrictions on what can be a CBD, so CBD soda can be like, especially in terms of shelf life, we provide that analysis to say this might change and this company is going to have to change its products or it's going to be gone. On the other side, it's providing that sort of um, just general due diligence stuff. But most of that is based on demand, right? What's the demand for these different extracts going to be? What's the demand for these products going to be? What's consumer profile? What's the size of the market? And then, you know, the other sort of more granular of like, how's the operating team look like? What's the operations look like? How are their financials? What's the balance sheet strength? Like, does this make sense? All those things. So it's a wide variety of services, but it can be broken up into, you know, normal due diligence and then regulatory, um, regulatory due diligence and hedging. So in addition to that side of your business, you guys also work with um, governments, uh, federal governments, the U.S. and Canadian government to help write the rules, um, you know, for this industry, essentially. Um, but you also work with MSOs to help obtain their licenses. And, and you've, you know, developed and executed, you know, international expansion, expansion strategies. Can you talk a little bit more about the process of working on both sides of this? Uh, I can take this one. This is Adam. Um, you know, and I, at the risk of sounding a little cliched, it just it just takes doing good, honest work for your clients. Um, it takes understanding what their objectives are, 
um, you know, for a, a business that's looking for a strategy to enter a new market, you have to be conscious of what the regulatory environment is and what their business opportunities and strengths are. And you have to give them an honest assessment uh, and call their baby ugly when needed. Uh, but the same can be said for a government. Breathtaking. So, um, the baby is breathtaking. Breathtaking. <laughs> government's, government's success in this is hinged on industry success in a lot of ways. Um, governments have shown amazing aptitude at um, either overly controlling these markets or letting them run unfettered. And on either side, there are some consequences for governments, but then also for businesses. So, you know, in our mind, this is just all kind of wrapped together. And it takes uh, understanding really at the core of this is how big is the market going to be in this area that we're talking about? Could be a state, could be a country, could be a city. Um, and whether our clients are a, a business uh, or a government, um, you know, once you know that, you can implement your objectives, uh, whether that's regulating or whether that's carving out a piece of the market for your business. You guys were integral in helping shape the, the Canadian market. You were integral in helping shape the Colorado market. What's the fundamental difference between the way Canadian regulators look at at these markets versus U.S. regulators, other than their unfailing ability to be more polite in Canada than in the U.S.? This is Adam. Yes, it, it, everything is definitely has a, a sheen of politeness in Canada, and uh, I do enjoy uh, doing work there. Um, you know, in Canada, it's just a, a history, a different history of the role of government there. Um, and so a regulator looks at things differently than uh, one in the United States. Um, and they just have a lot of, of different systems that like, for instance, in uh, Ontario, um, you know, the government sells liquor uh, and, uh, you know, is also um, for a time was proposed to be the distributor and retailer of cannabis. So, you know, in, in Canada, they're really trying to kind of file cannabis along with some of their other systems. And in the U.S., um, things can go either way, where um, sometimes these states become legal through a ballot process and the, the ballot process defines what these systems will look like in each state. And in other states, they're, the legislature defines it and they look a lot differently and uh you know a generalization is in the west it was it was uh, the markets were planned by the advocates and in the east it's more the legislature hmm. what's the single dumbest thing you are you've been told by a government official <laughs> uh you know, I, I don't think I can uh, name names on that. And I That's honestly, fine. I can't I can't remember a, a, like a single statement because uh, to generalize, you know, they're they're all uh, government officials are always very careful about what they say. Um, but um, I can give you an observation that I've seen, um, which is uh, in, in some places I've observed that governments in uh, in the name of public safety and in the name that, you know, can, selling cannabis is going to be a new thing in their state. They try and they, they try and restrict it and control it very heavily. And this has happened in a lot of different states. 
And in doing that, they do that to try and, you know, keep public safety and public health objectives in line. But what they do is that they're, you know, the consequence of that action is the exact opposite of what they intend. Um, and it really entrenches the illicit market. I've, this happened in California. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the legal market's been slow to absorb there because of um, difficulties at local government level, high taxes, uh, difficult and long processes for gaining licenses. And, you know, the, the illicit market is, was strong before and is strong now there for those reasons. Can we talk taxes for a second? Because, you know, the, the illicit market in California is still three to four times the size of the, the illicit market. If you could sit down with the, the state of California, what's the right tax rate? Like, where's that, where's that the, the, the bliss point between making enough money to help fund the, the, the projects you need to do or making enough money that you could actually bond against versus too much where you're going to drive consumers back to the illicit market? Um, you know, so there is no one magic rate, uh, and it depends. Um, but, you know, what we've seen in Colorado, uh, Nevada, uh, and Oregon, too, is that if you have your tax rate, um, you know, below 35 percent, you know, and uh, somewhere between 20 and they actually, I mean, it's a wide range. You could use between 20 and, you know, 30 ish percent, let's just say, um, you know, has shown to be working in places like Colorado um, and other states. I would say also for California specifically, right? tax rate is is one issue that they're going to deal with is the price differential between the black or sorry the illegal and the legal market another thing that california needs to do is fund and properly enforce its legal cannabis market restrictions that is a challenge that they're facing right now and whether that's a resource issue or it's a legislative issue california's kind of got to clean itself up a little bit, and then it will have an absolutely flourishing market. But until they do something to put a dent in um, that illegal side of it, it's going to be very difficult for them to really realize the true benefits of that market. You know, Lewis, so, uh, taxes is just taxes are just one part of this. You know, it also a lot has to do with how many stores are around and what are the prices in them. You know, and when. Uh, there are enough when there's enough access and when it's as easy to go to your cannabis, your legal cannabis store and the prices are at or lower than what you could get and just as convenient as what you could get uh, prior to that with an illegal relationship, then the legal market will win at that time. Taxes are part of it. Do you guys uh, this is just a question i it occurred to me because adam you called them stores right and the the official nomenclature is dispensaries do you think that that, that those types of words matter i mean sal you caught yourself um and and changed you know saying the black market to the illegal or the illicit market but does calling a cannabis store a dispensary do you think that there's a disincentive to it uh, because like oh i'm going to a dispensary i'm doing something that's you know 
not quite kosher versus, yeah, I'm going to the store. I'm going to the liquor store. I'm going to go pick up a six pack. I'm going to the cannabis store. I'm going to go buy a pack of pre-rolls. The, the, do you think that that stuff matters? I think the word dispensary comes from the fact that the first of these establishments were medical cannabis dispensaries and dispensary has that sort of pseudo um you know therapeutic like you're going somewhere to get some therapy for yourself and you know um i guess you caught me uh talking more about how things have become here in colorado where going to as I call it, a cannabis store is more akin or on the adult use side is more akin now in a lot of places to going to the liquor store um, in the way that it's merchandised, presented um, and the experience to me skews more that way. I think, um, you know, there are certain establishments, depending on what their angle is, um, that would skew more towards you. You feel like you're in a place where you're receiving therapy or medicine. Uh, I think it all has to do with the marketing. Um, but I think it's an evolution we're talking about here. Yeah. Sal, you, 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 know, you were talking about the difference between, you know, regulation and taxation and, and the impact that both of those play on the conversion from the illicit market into the taxed and regulated market. You guys spend a lot of time looking at how provinces in Canada are, are going through the regulatory process and consulting with them, states in the U.S. and cities in the U.S. are. Who do you think has done the best job in structuring um, a regulated market, um, and why are they doing better than others? Um, this is Sal, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give this is this is my opinion, and Adam can have his own. I think Colorado's done the best so far. I think Colorado's done the best, right? I think we've um, effectively absorbed illegal market demand. The prices are in line, and the money is being the tax revenue is being used for, you know, social good such as educational imperatives. So to me, that's what good looks like, right? Um, from the other side, you know, you got to think. Basically, if you are a government and you don't properly address demand, you are encouraging illegal market activity on either side. So demand has these two guardrails. On one side, you have too few dispensaries or outlets for people to effectively get the cannabis they desire. So you're not effectively fulfilling legal demand if you have too few outlets for that. If you have too many on the other side, then you're encouraging people who have an oversurplus of cannabis to sell that in the illegal market, and that usually goes to another state. So these guardrails have to be effectively created. You have to have you know, the right number of cultivation or space of cultivation. You have to have the right number of processing facilities. You have to have the right number of dispensaries to properly address demand. And with that, you will effectively absorb the illegal market demand. Um, Colorado's done a fantastic job at that. And I'll obviously second that being a 20-year Colorado resident, uh, I think. Um, though it wasn't always a smooth ride, um, the state here has been thoughtful about uh, its tax rate, about uh, access, um, and about... Um, having enough product at the proper prices. And um, while I don't think 
it'll take a long time for illegal markets to ever go away in cannabis. It's not until it's federally legal will that really start to happen. Um, I think Colorado's uh, almost fully absorbed, absorbed all they could possibly absorb uh, in the regulated market. And most people that uh, are using cannabis in Colorado, residents and tourists that come here are using the regulated market and not going to the illegal market. We usually ask this question in, in a little bit of a different way. We usually ask, you know, what what stories is the media missing? You know, what would you like to see in, um, you know, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? But I guess I want to broaden it out a little bit more and ask, um, in general, what trends are we missing? So what are you guys seeing? You have access to a lot of data. Um, what are you seeing that just hasn't made it mainstream yet? And this question can go to either one or both. Uh, I'll take that. I'll take that one. Um, you know, one thing that I saw that I was pretty surprised recently was that um, Colorado's uh, cannabis sales uh, revenue and uh, sale, total sales for the year last year um, actually started rising again at a, a pretty fast rate. Um, and uh, we we had we had thought, you know, four years ago that you know this would be the the point in time where we'd be seeing a plateau of revenue uh, of sales. Uh, and it started to slow a little bit from uh, 18 to 19, um, uh, or I should say in 2018. But then in 2019, it started going up again. And I could only say it's, uh, I think it's because, um, you know, can, people are consuming more cannabis is becoming a more widely used product um, by adults in Colorado. Um, and, uh, despite the fact that prices have been going down quite a bit, uh, there's still sales going up, uh, uh, every year now. So, um, that was my, my latest surprise sort of related to the, the markets and data and cannabis. How about you, Sal? What do you think is that, that there, there's something that's kind of percolating underneath the, the, the current of what everybody's paying attention to, but you're looking at going, there's some real opportunity. So um, I don't know if this opportunity, I just think this is going to be becoming more common and we'll see it more and more common. I believe that there is going to be in the uh, consumer hemp industry, much more class action lawsuits against hemp companies who haven't kept historical testing records appropriately and have been making claims about efficacy of their product. That's what I really think is going to happen, right? We kind of were in the wild west uh, stage for a while. And as these companies get bigger and have enough war chests to, su to survive a class action lawsuit and actually pay it out, I think that there's going to be a lot more of those in the market. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's flip this for a second. Um, and this is my favorite question. It's about failure. Um, you guys are both really successful. And... You know, people look at you and say, oh, this was this could be an overnight success for you guys. But we all know that it takes a lot of swings and misses before you hit a home run. Can Adam, can you talk about either a personal or a professional failure that helped make you the success you are today? And then Sal, talk about what your most favorite or interesting project has been. Sure, I get the failure one. Huh? All right. Uh, <laughs> Look, I'm you want failures from both? Huh? No. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, 
Yeah, God, if I can count on uh, how many times I've swung and missed on either uh, proposal efforts or, you know, interviews with a client that you think you're going to get or, you know, um, uh, there's there it's, you know, what, who was that Michael Jordan that said, you know, you're going to miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take or uh, he's missed you know, an amazing, amazing miss of uh, free throw percentage. Uh, for final winning shots. But, um, you know, there was one that particularly stung. Um, and this was early in our, uh, cannabis career. Um, this is back in 2013. Um, we, uh, had joined up with a number of early cannabis pioneers in Colorado to chase some work in Washington state. And we all spent a lot of time putting our different pieces together. And there was a law firm and there was, a um, you know, uh, a known notable cannabis cultivation and retailing operation and, um, and our, our, us were in it and we were for weeks on writing this thing. And then when it was time to send it in, uh, whoever sent it in missed the deadline because, uh, the attachment was too large on the email. And, uh, th this was our first big swing in the cannabis world and we it was like a colossal miss <laughs> and uh um but about a couple months later we had a, a similar thing happen it was a colossal win and uh so it just goes to tell you that you know one door shuts another one opens so on the flip side then what's your most or favorite interesting project most favorite. I like most that. Favorite. Most favorite. Not your favorite, yes. your most favorite. So uh, we have a combination of, very, you know, all of our projects are very interesting. I think my top favorite three are working with a Swiss pharmaceutical company to help them enter the Canadian market and develop a cannabis-centric um, pharmaceutical product for senior citizens that had a sublingual delivery mechanism. You know, we got to do a market analysis, find a partner, understand who their customer profile was and determine different products, including uh, veterinary products for them. We've also uh, done some interesting work with Native American tribes to help them understand the potential of their of a cannabis operation on their tribal lands and how that would integrate with their current revenue streams, including their entertainment, their casino, alcohol sales, and things like that. And then finally, I think it's our work with the Colorado Department of Agriculture to do the CHAMP, which is the Colorado Hemp Advancement Management Plan. And that just really puts us sort of at the forefront of the hemp industry, you know, working with some of the, you know, stakeholders across the value chain who are just really ahead of the curve and helping develop that whole ecosystem. So all three of those I think are equally favorite and different, but still very cool. Guys, is there anything else that we need to talk about? Cause you, you have been absolutely fascinating. Um, anything else? Uh, no, Lewis, thanks so much for having us on. And uh, I hope uh, you guys are doing staying self, uh, safe and healthy uh, in your uh, seclusion. We're staying Dude, selfie. I've been, <laughs> I, I've been self distancing for almost 50 years. Okay. <laughs> You're ready for this. <laughs> I, I was born to be socially awkward and distant from people. They're not saying be socially awkward. I think you're mishearing that, Lewis. They're just saying be socially distant. What's the difference for me? It's, you know what? The more awkward I am, the more people want to stay away from me. I think I don't, and I don't blame them. 
(laughs) (laughs) On that note, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. This is great. Special thanks to Sal Barnes and Adam Orens from MPG Consulting. To read the white paper on cannabis municipal bonds or to just get in touch with them, go to mpg.consulting. As always, we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at the underscore Greenrush or on Instagram at the Greenrush underscore podcast. I'm never going to be okay with those not being the same handles. Never. Um, you can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback, for guest ideas, uh, for better designs, for homemade masks, for ways to be less socially awkward when I'm distancing from people. Basically, whatever you guys want, you can email me and I will listen to it. Um, I want to thank Anne for, as always, being an amazing co-host, Shay for being a great producer, um, Nick Opich for being in the heat in Arizona. Um, he got stuck there uh, when he got married. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher, which includes iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and just basically anything. Um, and that is one take, Shay. One take.